Section 6 of A Dialogue Concerning Oratory, or The Causes of Corrupt Eloquence, by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Arthur Murphy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In opposition to this system of education, what is our modern practice? Our young men are led to academical prelusions in the school of vain professors who call themselves rhetoricians, a race of impostors who made their first appearance at Rome not long before the days of Cicero. That they were unwelcome visitors is evident from the circumstance of their being silenced by the two censors, Crossus and Domitius. They were ordered, says Cicero, to shut up their school of impudence. Those scenes, however, are open at present, and there our young students listen to mountebank oratory. I am at a loss how to determine which is most fatal to all true genius, the place itself, the company that frequent it, or the plan of study universally adopted. Can the place impress the mind with awe and respect, where none are ever seen but the raw, the unskilful, and the ignorant? In such an assembly, what advantage can arise? Boys herring before boys, and young men exhibit before their fellows. The speaker is pleased with his declamation, and the hearer with his judgment. The very subjects on which they display their talents tend to no useful purpose. They are of two sorts, persuasive or controversial. The first, supposed to be of the lighter kind, are usually assigned to the youngest scholars. The last are reserved for students of longer practice and riper judgment. But, gracious powers! What are the compositions produced on these occasions? The subject is remote from truth, and even probability, unlike anything that ever happened in human life. And no wonder if the superstructure perfectly agrees with the foundation. It is to these scenic exercises that we owe a number of frivolous topics, such as the reward due to the slayer of a tyrant, the election to be made by violated virgins, the rites and ceremonies proper to be used during a raging pestilence, the loose behavior of married women, with other fictitious subjects, hackneyed in the schools, and seldom or never heard of in our courts of justice. These imaginary questions are treated with gaudy flourishes and all the tumour of unnatural language. But after all this mighty parade, call these striplings from their schools of rhetoric into the presence of the judges and to the real business of the bar. What figure will they make before that solemn judicature? Trained up in chimerical exercises, strangers to the municipal laws, unacquainted with the principles of natural justice and the rights of nations, they will bring with them that false taste which they have been for years acquiring, but nothing worthy of the public ear.
nothing useful to their clients. They have succeeded in nothing but the art of making themselves ridiculous. The peculiar quality of the teacher, whatever it be, is sure to transfuse itself into the performance of the pupil. Is the master haughty, fierce and arrogant? The scholar swells with confidence, his eye threatens prodigious things, and his herring is an ostentatious display of the commonplaces of school oratory, dressed up with dazzling splendor and thundered forth with emphasis. On the other hand, does the master value himself for the delicacy of his taste, for the foppery of glittering conceits and tinsel ornament? The youth who has been educated under him sets out with the same artificial prettiness, the same foppery of style and manner. A simper plays on his countenance, his allocution is soft and delicate, his action pathetic, his sentences entangle in a maze of sweet perplexity. He plays off the whole of his theatrical skill and hopes to elevate and surprise. This love of finery, this ambition to shine and glitter, has destroyed all true eloquence. Oratory is not the child of hireling teachers. It springs from another source, from a love of liberty, from a mind replete with moral science and a thorough knowledge of the laws from a due respect for the best examples, from profound meditation in a style formed by constant practice. While these were thought essential requisites, eloquence flourished. But the true beauties of language fell into disuse, and oratory went to ruin. The spirit evaporated. I fear to revive no more. I wish I may prove a false prophet, but we know the progress of art in every age and country. Rude at first, it rises from low beginnings and goes on improving till it reaches the highest perfection in the kind. But at that point, it is never stationary. It soon declines, and from the corruption of what is good, it is not in the nature of men nor in the power of human faculties to rise again to the same degree of excellence. Masala closed with a degree of vehemence, and then, turning to Maternus and Secundus, It is yours, he said, to pursue this train of argument, or, if any cause of the decay of eloquence lies still deeper, you will oblige us by bringing it to light. Maternus, I presume, will find no difficulty. A poetic genius holds commerce with the gods, and to him nothing will remain a secret. As for Secundus, he has been long the shining ornament of the forum, and by his own experience knows how to distinguish genuine eloquence from the corrupt and vicious. Maternus heard the sally of his friend's good humor with a smile. The task, he said, which you have imposed upon us, we will endeavor to execute. 
but though I am the interpreter of the gods, I must, notwithstanding, request that Secundus may take the lead. He is master of the subject, and in questions of this kind, experience is better than inspiration. Secundus complied with his friend's request. I yield, he said, the more willingly, as I shall hazard no new opinion, but rather confirm what has been urged by Messala. It is certain that, as painters are formed by painters, and poets by the example of poets, so the young orator must learn his art from orators only. In the schools of rhetoricians, who think themselves the fountainhead of eloquence, everything is false and vitiated. The true principles of the persuasive art are never known to the professor, or, if at any time there may be found a preceptor of superior genius, can it be expected that he shall be able to transfuse into the mind of his pupil all his own conceptions, pure, unmixed, and free from error? The sensibility of the master, since we have allowed him genius, will be an impediment. The uniformity of the same dull, tedious round will give him disgust, and the student will turn from it with aversion. And yet, I am inclined to think that the decay of eloquence would not have been so rapid if other causes more fatal than the corruption of the schools had not cooperated. When the worst models became the objects of imitation, and not only the young men of the age, but even the whole body of the people, admired the new way of speaking, eloquence fell at once into that state of degeneracy from which nothing can recover it. We, who came afterwards, found ourselves in a hopeless situation. We were driven to wretched expedients, to forced conceits, and the glitter of frivolous sentences. We were obliged to hunt after wit when we could be no longer eloquent. By what pernicious examples this was accomplished has been explained by our friend Messala. We are, none of us, strangers to those unhappy times, when Rome, grown weary of her vast renown in arms, began to think of striking into new paths of fame, no longer willing to depend on the glory of our ancestors. The whole power of the state was centered in a single ruler, and by the policy of the prince men were taught to think no more of ancient honor. Invention was on the stretch for novelty, and all looked for something better than perfection, something rare, far-fetched, and exquisite. New modes of pleasure were devised. In that period of luxury and dissipation, when the rage for new inventions was grown epidemic, Seneca arose. His talents were of a peculiar sort, acute, refined, and polished, but polished to a degree that made him prefer affectation and wit to truth and nature. The predominance of his genius was great, and by consequence he gave the mortal stab to all true eloquence. 
when I say this, let me not be suspected of that low malignity which would tarnish the fame of a great character. I admire the man and the philosopher. The undaunted firmness with which he braved the tyrant's frown will do immortal honor to his memory. But the fact is, and why should I disguise it, the virtues of the writer have undone his country. To bring about this unhappy revolution, no man was so eminently qualified. His understanding was large and comprehensive, his genius rich and powerful, his way of thinking ingenious, elegant, and even charming. His researches in moral philosophy excited the admiration of all, and moral philosophy is never so highly praised as when the manners are in a state of degeneracy. Seneca knew the taste of the times. He had the art to gratify the public ear. His style is neat, yet animated, concise, yet clear, familiar, yet seldom inelegant. Free from redundancy, his periods are often abrupt, but they surprise by their vivacity. He shines in pointed sentences, and that unceasing persecution of vice, which is kept up with uncommon ardor, spreads a luster over all his writings, his brilliant style charmed by its novelty. Every page sparkles with wit, with gay illusions and sentiments of virtue. No wonder that the graceful ease and sometimes the dignity of his expression, made their way into the forum. What pleased universally soon found a number of imitators. Add to this the advantages of rank and honors. He mixed in the splendor, and perhaps in the vices of the court. The resentment of Caligula, and the acts of oppression which soon after followed, served only to adorn his name. To crown all, Nero was his pupil and his murderer. Hence, the character and genius of the man rose to the highest eminence. What was admired was imitated, and true oratory was heard no more. The love of novelty prevailed, and for the dignified simplicity of ancient eloquence no taste remained. The art itself, and all its necessary discipline, became ridiculous. In that black period, when vice triumphed at large, and virtue had everything to fear, the temper of the times was propitious to the corruptors of taste and liberal science. The dignity of composition was no longer of use. It had no power to stop the torrent of vice which deluged the city of Rome, and virtue found it a feeble protection. In such a conjuncture, it was not safe to speak the sentiments of the heart. To be obscure, abrupt, and dark was the best expedient. Then it was that the affected sententious brevity came into vogue. To speak concisely and with an air of precipitation was the general practice. To work the ruin of a person accused, a single sentence or a splendid phrase was sufficient. 
men defended themselves in a short, brilliant expression, and if that did not protect them, they died with a lively apothem, and their last words were wit. This was the fashion introduced by Seneca. The peculiar but agreeable vices of his style wrought the downfall of eloquence. The solid was exchanged for the brilliant, and they who ceased to be orators studied to be ingenious. Of late, indeed, we have seen the dawn of better times. In the course of the last six years, Vespasian has revived our hopes. The friend of regular manners and the encourager of ancient virtue, by which Rome was raised to the highest pinnacle of glory, he has restored the public peace, and with it the blessings of liberty. Under his propitious influence, the arts and sciences begin once more to flourish, and genius has been honored with his munificence. The example of his sons has helped to kindle a spirit of emulation. We beheld, with pleasure, the true princes adding to the dignity of their rank and their fame in arms all the grace and elegance of polite literature. But it is fatally true that when the public taste is once corrupted, the mind which has been warped seldom recovers its former tone. This difficulty was rendered still more insurmountable by the licentious spirit of our young men and the popular applause that encouraged the false taste of the times. I need not, in this company, call to mind the unbridled presumption with which, as soon as genuine eloquence expired, the young men of the age took possession of the forum. Of modest worth and ancient manners, nothing remained. We know that in former times the youthful candidate was introduced in the forum by a person of consular rank, and by him set forward and his road to fame. That laudable custom being at an end, all fences were thrown down, no sense of shame remained, no respect for the tribunals of justice. The aspiring genius wanted no patronage, he scorned the usual forms of a regular introduction, and with full confidence in his own powers, he obtruded himself on the court. Neither the solemnity of the place, nor the sanctity of laws, nor the importance of the oratorical character could restrain the impetuosity of young ambition. Unconscious of the importance of the undertaking, and less sensible of his own incapacity, the bold adventurer rushed at once into the most arduous business. Arrogance supplied the place of talents. To oppose the torrent that bore down everything, the danger of losing all fair and honest fame was the only circumstance that could afford a ray of hope. But even that slender fence was soon removed by the arts of largest Licinius. He was the first that opened a new road to ambition. He intrigued for fame and filled the benches with an audience suborned to applaud his declamations. 
he had his circle round him, and shouts of approbation followed. It was upon that occasion that Domitius Offer emphatically said, Eloquence is now at the last gasp. It had, indeed, at that time, shown manifest symptoms of decay, but its total ruin may be dated from the introduction of a mercenary band to flatter and applaud. If we accept a chosen few, whose superior genius had not as yet been seduced from truth and nature, the rest are followed by their partisans, like actors on the stage, subsisting altogether on the bought suffrages of mean and prostitute hirelings. Nor is this sordid traffic carried on with secrecy. We see the bargain made in the face of the court. The bribe is distributed with as little ceremony as if they were in a private party at the orator's own house. Having sold their voices, this venal crew rush forward from one tribunal to another, the distributors of fame, and the sole judges of literary merit. The practice is, no doubt, disgraceful. To brand it with infamy, two new terms have been invented, one in the Greek language, importing the vendors of praise, and the other in the Latin idiom, signifying the parasites who sell their applause for a supper. But sarcastic expressions have not been able to cure the mischief. The applauders by profession have taken courage, and the name, which was intended as a stroke of ridicule, is now become an honorable appellation. This infamous practice rages at present with increasing violence. The party no longer consists of freeborn citizens. Our very slaves are hired. Even before they arrive at full age, we see them distributing the rewards of eloquence. Without attending to what is said, and without sense enough to understand, they are sure to crowd the courts of justice whenever a raw young man stung with the love of fame, but without talents to deserve it, obtrudes himself in the character of an advocate. The hall resounds with acclamations, or rather with a kind of bellowing, for I know not by what term to express that savage uproar which would disgrace a theatre. Upon the whole, when I consider these infamous practices which have brought so much dishonor upon a liberal profession, I am far from wondering that you, Maternus, judged it time to sound your retreat. When you could no longer attend with honor, you did well, my friend to devote yourself entirely to the muses. And now, since you are to close the debate, permit me to request that, besides unfolding the causes of corrupt eloquence, you will fairly tell us whether you entertain any hopes of better times, and, if you do, by what means a reformation may be accomplished. It is true, said Maternus, that seeing the forum deluged by an inundation of vices, I was glad, as my friend expressed it, to sound my retreat. I saw corruption, 
rushing on with hasty strides, too shameful to be defended, and too powerful to be resisted. And yet, though urged by all those motives, I should hardly have renounced the business of the bar, if the bias of my nature had not inclined me to other studies. I balanced, however, for some time. It was, at first, my fixed resolution to stand to the last a poor remnant of that integrity and manly eloquence which still lingered at the bar, and shewed some signs of life. It was my intention to emulate, not indeed with equal powers, but certainly with equal firmness, the bright models of ancient times, and in that course of practice to defend the fortunes the dignity and the innocence of my fellow-citizens. But the strong impulse of inclination was not to be resisted. I laid down my arms and deserted to the safe and tranquil camp of the muses. But though a deserter, I have not quite forgot the service in which I was enlisted. I honor the professors of real eloquence, and that sentiment, I hope, will be always warm in my heart. In my solitary walks and moments of meditation, it often happens that I fall into a train of thinking on the flourishing state of ancient eloquence, and the abject condition to which it is reduced in modern times. The result of my reflections I shall venture to unfold, not with a spirit of controversy, nor yet dogmatically, to enforce my own opinion. I may differ in some points, but from a collision of sentiments it is possible that some new light may be struck out. My friend Opper will, therefore, excuse me if I do not, with him, prefer the false glitter of the moderns to the solid vigor of ancient genius. At the same time, it is not my intention to disparage his friends. Messala, too, whom you, Secundus, have closely followed, will forgive me if I do not, in everything, coincide with his opinion. The vices of the forum, which you have both, as becomes men of integrity, attacked with vehemence, will not have me for their apologist. But still, I may be allowed to ask, have not you been too much exasperated against the rhetoricians? I will not say in their favor that I think them equal to the task of reviving the honors of eloquence, but I have known among them men of unblemished morals, of regular discipline, great erudition, and talents every way fit to form the minds of youth to a just taste for science in the persuasive arts. In this number, one in particular has lately shone forth with superior lustre. From his abilities, all that is in the power of men may fairly be expected. A genius like his would have been the ornament of better times. Posterity will admire and honor him. And yet, I would not have Secundus amuse himself with ill-grounded hopes. Neither the learning of that most excellent man 
nor the industry of such as may follow him, will be able to promote the interests of eloquence, or to establish her former glory. It is a lost cause. Before the vices, which have been so ably described, had spread a general infection, all true oratory was at an end. The revolutions in our government, and the violence of the times, began the mischief, and in the end gave the fatal blow. Nor are we to wonder at this event. In the course of human affairs there is no stability, nothing secure or permanent. It is with our minds as with our bodies, the latter, as soon as they have attained their full growth, and seem to flourish in the vigor of health, begin, from that moment, to feel the gradual approaches of decay. Our intellectual powers proceed in the same manner. They gain strength by degrees, they arrive at maturity, and when they can no longer improve, they languish, droop, and fade away. This is the law of nature, to which every age and every nation of which we have any historical records have been obliged to submit. There is, besides, another general law, hard perhaps, but wonderfully ordained, and it is this. Nature, whose operations are always simple and uniform, never suffers in any age or country more than one great example of perfection in the kind. This was the case in Greece, that prolific parent of genius and of science. She had but one Homer, one Plato, one Demosthenes. The same has happened at Rome. Virgil stands at the head of his art, and Cicero is still unrivaled. During a space of seven hundred years, our ancestors were struggling to reach the summit of perfection. Cicero at length arose. He thundered forth his immortal energy, and nature was satisfied with the wonder she had made. The force of genius could go no further. A new road to fame was to be found. We aimed at wit and gay conceit and glittering sentences. The change, indeed, was great, but it naturally followed the new form of government. Genius died with public liberty. We find that the discourse of men always conforms to the temper of the times. Among savage nations, language is never copious. A few words serve the purpose of barbarians, and those are always uncouth and harsh, without the artifice of connection, short, abrupt, and nervous. In a state of polished society, where a single ruler sways the scepter, the powers of the mind take a softer tone, and language grows more refined. But affectation follows, and precision gives way to delicacy. The just and natural expression is no longer the fashion. Living in ease and luxury, men look for elegance, and hope by novelty to give a grace to adulation. 
in other nations, where the first principles of the civil union are maintained in vigor, where the people live under the government of laws and not the will of men, where the spirit of liberty pervades all ranks and orders of the state, where every individual holds himself bound at the hazard of his life to defend the constitution framed by his ancestors, where, without being guilty of an impious crime, no man dares to violate the rights of the whole community. In such a state, the national eloquence will be prompt, bold, and animated. Should internal dissensions shake the public peace, or foreign enemies threaten to invade the land, eloquence comes forth, arrayed in terror. She wields her thunder and commands all hearts. It is true that upon those occasions men of ambition endeavor, for their own purposes, to spread the flame of sedition, while the good and virtuous combine their force to quell the turbulent and repel the menaces of a foreign enemy. Liberty gains new strength by the conflict, and the true patriot has the glory of serving his country, distinguished by his valor in the field, and in debate no less terrible by his eloquence. Hence, it is that in free governments we see a constellation of orators. Hence Demosthenes displayed the powers of his amazing genius, and acquired immortal honor. He saw a quick and lively people, dissolved in luxury, open to the seductions of wealth, and ready to submit to a master. He saw a great and warlike monarch, threatening destruction to the liberties of his country. He saw that prince, at the head of powerful armies, renowned for victory, possessed of an opulent treasury, formidable in battle, and by his secret arts still more so in the cabinet. He saw that king, inflamed by ambition and the lust of dominion, determined to destroy the liberties of Greece. It was that alarming crisis that called forth the powers of Demosthenes. Armed with eloquence, and with eloquence only, he stood as a bulwark against a combination of enemies, foreign and domestic. He roused his countrymen from their lethargy. He kindled the holy flame of liberty. He counteracted the machinations of Philip, detected his clandestine frauds, and fired the men of Athens with indignation. To effect these generous purposes, and defeat the policy of a subtle enemy, what powers of mind were necessary? How vast, how copious, how sublime! He thundered and lightened in his discourse. He faced every danger with undaunted resolution. Difficulties, served only to inspire him with new ardor. The love of his country glowed in his heart. Liberty roused all his powers, and fame held forth her immortal wreath to reward his labors. These were the fine incentives that roused his genius, and no wonder that his mind expanded with vast conceptions. 
he thought for his country, and by consequence every sentiment was sublime, every expression was grand and magnificent. End of section 6